Gary's like, I've always had this fun idea of cards and coffee. It's going to be like a cooler version of all these other card stores. Most of them are antiquated, 20, 30 years old, and it's the same father and son, and they won't modernize it. Cards and coffee would be cool. And I was like, sure, I'll do it. That's Dan Fleischman, serial entrepreneur, marketing expert, and the youngest founder of a publicly traded company in history. Seven weeks later, I sent a photo to the group chat of me standing in front of the store, open. Eight weeks later, I did a million dollars in sales. Eight months later, we did $10 million in sales. Now, two years later, it's been $27 million in sales. There's nine stores open. All because Gary was joking. I got an idea for card and copy. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Dan Fleischman to discuss leveraging opportunities by remaining calm in chaos, achieving entrepreneurial freedom, and why every great success story begins by taking that first step. When people have these hesitations, they're like, yeah, one day I'll do that when things are right. There's never a perfect time. There's never a perfect time to get married. There's never a perfect time to have a kid. There's never a perfect time to start a business. You just start. And I think it'll change a lot of people's lives if they realize that not that much bad can happen from getting started on your dreams. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. All right, Dan, welcome to the podcast. I am excited to rock and roll. You put the serial and serial entrepreneur. I know you've got a lot going on and I want to get to some of that. But before we do, take it all the way back. I'm curious if there's any early experiences, whether it's in your childhood or anything just very early on that kind of shaped you into the person you are today. I was four years old at the swap meet, buying and selling baseball cards. My parents had a van. They just used to sell Levi's jeans out of the back of a van because we didn't have any money. Every weekend, sell jeans there. And I was selling baseball cards like a little Gary V from four years old to eight years old. When I went to middle school, I was buying and selling candy. My mom would give me 20 bucks to buy candy at Costco. I'd flip it to 40 or 50 bucks, give her back her 20. I was selling candy. And then as soon as I was allowed to work, 15 and a half years old, I got three jobs at the same time. I was working at Qualcomm Stadium, so peanuts and Cracker Jacks, walking up and down the stairs, working for oldie discount stockbrokers, getting paid under the table, working at the stockbrokers for, and I was working at Ruby's Diner with a sailor's cap on. So I just grew up hustling and working because we needed money. So I wanted to work. So I'm curious about that. Was that really the reason why it was just because you needed the money or was there something else that drew you to entrepreneurship or did you even think about it as being an entrepreneur at the time? I just thought about not having any idle hours of the day. I was always working, always slinging something, selling something, doing whatever I could to make side hustles or side jobs. I just had to work at all times and I still feel that way every day. I don't do vacations. I don't want to chill out. I want to work. I enjoy it. 
And so we needed money because we just didn't have much money. I didn't need it for anything in particular. I just know I needed it because we didn't have anything. So I just wanted to like save up as much as I could like a little squirrel. Yeah. And I believe it was at 17, you started selling hoodies, you turned that into a multi-million dollar clothing brand. A clothing brand is not the easiest type of business to start out in, especially if you're bootstrapping. And if you can talk about building that brand. So from 15 to 17, I'd saved up $43,000 over those three years. That's what I was going to use for SDSU to go to college. And at 17 and a half, I started the clothing brand. I trademarked the catchphrase, who's your daddy? And for 300 different products, a bunch of different trademarks in different countries. And so we started selling t-shirts and made hundred t-shirts, 15 bucks each, sold them for 1500 bucks. I'm a millionaire. I was like, oh my God, I'm in high school, I feel like a millionaire. I went to our first trade show called Magic in Las Vegas. We wrote over a million dollars in orders and didn't have a manufacturer to make them. And so that's where the business of learning how to start a business and build a business and raise capital, et cetera, it all started from that crazy moment in time. And then we were 19 years old, we got a $9.5 million licensing deal from Starter Apparel. And so now all of a sudden we got a three-year deal, $9.5 million for three years, 8% of gross sales minimum, plus 3% for marketing fees, plus they pay for all production. So they made us jeans and hats and shoes and shirts. So they're spending like a million or two a year just in production for us to save us sample costs and design costs. So I just got thrown into it. I learned the hard way, the exciting way. There's no social media back then. There's no cell phones back then. This is 1999, 2000. I'm in it. I'm living and breathing it. And I think that's what allowed me to learn a lot of these things. I wish I had social media. I wish I could listen to Michael on a podcast, right? I wish I could have had that information back then, but a podcast didn't exist. A cell phone didn't exist. Social media didn't exist. And so immersing myself in the business of how it all started. For many people that don't know you, I think one of the first things they hear about you is that you're the youngest founder of a publicly traded company in history. That in itself is a very interesting claim to fame. What was that process like? So that same brand I was talking about, I then started energy drinks under the same name and created the first flavored drinks. We made a cranberry pineapple and a green tea. And we're also zero sugar, zero carbs, zero calories back then. This is 2005. And so make the energy drink, bright yellow can, bright red can, bright green can. So we stand out because our competitors Red Bull Monster Rockstar, silver, black, black. So when you look at a cooler, I want it to be bright yellow, bright green, bright red. So when you walked by, you saw our brand and the big catchphrase on it. And so looked at the fact that they were all three to four bucks. We made ours two bucks. We made it more efficient, more price sensitive, et cetera, and made good flavors with no sugar, no carbs, no calories. Spent a year and a half of legal and accounting. It's almost $2 million in two years of legal to go public. Even though we were going the fast route of going public, which is reverse merger, acquire a company, et cetera, fast was two years and $2 million. And we're 23 years old when we go public. This is April of 2005. Going public changed my life. Social media is just getting started. MySpace is existing. The Facebook is around, but there's no true social media platforms the way they are today. And so going public, I'm doing general mainstream news like CNN, Fox News, those type of channels, doing press with Forbes magazine, doing traditional press where people actually used to read magazines everywhere all the time. And so that changed my life because that forced me to grow up in a different fashion of understanding legal and accounting. So every quarter, there was a 10Q and an 8K filing. And then every quarter while we're doing those filings, we had auditors auditing our auditors. So I had to look at it. The lawyers looked at it. Our CFO looked at it. We'd submit it to an auditor who then got audited by another auditor. And we would submit it to the SEC every quarter. A week of my life every month 
was literally living inside of lawyers' offices. I was spending 600K to a million dollars a year just in legal and accounting, not counting my normal legal and accounting, just for this, just for being public. And so again, with inflation, that's probably a lot more now. That's 15, 20 years ago. But I learned how to deal with adults, how to deal with stress, how to deal with insane chaos, how to deal with the legal system in general for the SEC because they are very particular about everything. If you do one wrong thing, you don't pass go, you don't collect $200, you go to jail. You have to do everything right and explain everything very well and clean cut. And so I learned a lot of my processes for now. I went through that training camp 15, 20 years ago. It's interesting. So you're talking about this is something you went through even in your 20s. You mentioned earlier being thrown into it. Were you throwing yourself into it? And I'm just wondering, picking up a lot of these lessons just as an entrepreneur, was it just really through experience or were you learning some other way? I didn't have a choice. So when I say thrown into it, I'm throwing myself into the fire because there's no other choice and there's nobody else to look at. It's like me and my business partner and my friend, that was it. There was no high-level CEOs. There was no masterminds and mentors and podcasts. There's books that existed, but I wasn't in the reading mode. I was a 23, 24-year-old kid. I'm in full steam ahead mode. And so learning from experience, there was mentors in the fact that in every meeting, I was asking questions and advice all the time because the meetings were long, really long because it's, again, it's legal, accounting, SEC, public filings, investment bankers, huge amounts of capital. There's a lot involved. And so during those meetings, I was asking questions left and right. And I never tried to act like I knew anything or everything, especially in the room with all these smart people. So the investment bankers, there was a manufacturer that helped us with all of our clothing. He used to do hundreds of millions of dollars. So listening to them and understanding the process they've gone through, why they do what they do, how they make their decisions. They would set me up with relationships to help fix things because I went through some bad people along the way trying to take advantage of me. Not even just trying. They did take advantage of me because I was a kid. And so immersing myself was the real world university. It sounds like just being in those rooms would in a later shape what would end up being some of the masterminds and the things you've been involved with. And I'm curious, with a lot of the different businesses, with your background, everything from the celebrity video greetings company, the online poker website, to the mobile apps, the tech companies, the consumer brands, et cetera, there's been so many wins that you're a part of. But obviously, I think there's the everything below the iceberg where not everything has been a huge win, not everything has been successful. Are you open to sharing any particularly memorable or challenging endeavor that just didn't go your way? I will share anything and everything. I actually like talking about the bad stuff because not enough people talk about the bad stuff because everybody acts like they're perfect and they're rah, everything's perfect all the time. Let's talk about the bad stuff. So Victory Poker. So I started Victory Poker. This is like 2009 range with Dan Bilzerian, DJ Steve Aoki, Playboy Playmates, Poker Pros, TV stars. We're all over TV every single week, every month. And we're up against Poker Stars in full tilt. Poker Stars is doing $8 million a day in revenue. Full Tilt is doing $4 million a day in revenue, to give you perspective. I started the whole company with $2.4 million. So I got about half a day of revenue is what I'm starting the whole business with to go battle with them because it is a battle for time and focus from poker players all over the world. There's 550 poker sites at the time. Bam, we become top five poker site in the world the first 10 months. Four months later, we get offered this crazy deal. A big competitor wants to be a strategic investor in us and help us on their platform. We're going to go to Costa Rica, April 19th. It's going to be amazing. $65 million valuation. We're doing seven figures a month in revenue. I only have five employees. My overhead is nothing. I don't have an office. Our overhead is nothing. Seven figures a month. So it sounds cool, right? April 15th, four days prior, I get a phone call at 10, 10 a.m. from Dan Bilzerian. Where are you? I'm like, oh, I'm actually at the Bellagio. I'm going to go to a meeting with a billionaire at 12 o'clock. That's why I'm here. This is the guy that invented 
the slot machine loyalty card, and has the patents to the Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy slot machines. So he's like a casino gaming legend. I got a poker site. I got to have a meeting with him at 12 o'clock. 10, 10 a.m., I'm getting yelled at by Bilzerian saying, why aren't you in Malta? We got to fix this. The whole poker world just shut down. I'm like, what are you talking about? Turn on the news. Every channel is. FBI seizes Full Tilt, Poker Stars, and Absolute Poker's world. They seize their company and seize their bank accounts in 16 countries, including non-extradition countries that there's no peace treaties, took their money there too. Billions of dollars is gone. I walk in, it's 12 o'clock. I'm meeting with this guy named Edward Fishman, multi-zillionaire. And as soon as I walk in the door, it's my first time meeting him at the Hard Rock. Open the door, he's like, man, you look like somebody died. I was like, well, the whole poker industry just kind of died. Turn on the news. And so we haven't said hi or shaken hands. Turns on the news. There it is. Online poker is shut down. Every channel is talking about it. So he puts Steve Wynn on speakerphone. <laughs> Just calls Steve Wynn casually. Steve's upset because he'd recently done a deal with Hotel Poker for the Wynn casinos. And so there's just chaos going on. And so I had a decision to make. I can sit on the floor and cry about it or do what I did. I did like 83 interviews that week. I manually paid back 41,000 players. So I didn't trust what the government was going to do. They seized everything from my competitors. I'm technically number one or number two in the world right now, but that's because my competitors are now dead or in jail. I don't want to win that way. And so I manually paid back 41,000 people, lose my company overnight, shut down. I don't even have to shut down. I never got in trouble at all. I never got a phone call, a letter, nothing happened. And so that moment made me realize the scoreboard is a scoreboard. My loss is there. Whether I want to sit and blame my competitors or blame the government, you can blame whoever you want. The scoreboard is a scoreboard. The L is still there, however you want to call it. And so instead of sitting on the floor and crying, I was licking my wounds and moved forward. And so that tragic moment actually was the best thing that ever happened. I started my social media agency. I started Elevator Nights to start throwing free events. I started to become an angel investor. I've invested in 43 companies since then. I started my charity, Model Citizen Fund which has been 11 years now or 12 years now for helping the homeless. None of those would have happened or they would have been delayed for years if I was still doing the poker site. And so I'm not just trying to find a silver lining. It really is the best thing that ever happened to me from a business and personal career perspective. And it helped tens of millions of people from the charity world because of the fact that I got to become this free agent that was never going to have all my eggs in one basket again. I was never going to be all in on any one project ever again. I appreciate you sharing that. I saw you posted recently on social media that when there is chaos, if you stay calm, there are opportunities. And you were sharing the case study of one of your other businesses, particularly during COVID. I know everyone's got a COVID story, but you had, I think it was Everbowl. And seeing that rapidly expand, if you can kind of share what happened during COVID, how you guys were able to pivot and grow from that. Everbowl is an acai bowl chain. At the time, there was like 23 locations and mostly based in San Diego, California, and then some in some stadiums in uh, the Vegas stadium, et cetera. So I had invested 500K. I raised $5 billion for them through a bunch of my friends and mastermind members. Right there, 2019, we just raised 5 billion bucks and they're expanding. They're ready to grow. March, 2020, the whole world shuts down, especially for restaurants. We have decisions to make. We have three or 400 employees, 23-ish locations. And we're not allowed to have humans walk it by our restaurant. And we don't know when the two weeks is going to actually be two weeks or not from the government. We don't know what's going to happen. And so Jeff Fenster, the CEO, I'm obsessed with him as a CEO. The way he pivoted so fast, he calls me. He's like, hey, I can make like 90,000 packs of acai, frozen packs that we can ship to people. 
what do you think? What should we do? I was like, oh yeah, we invested $3 million into a company called Icon Meals. They ship frozen meals. I'm in a group chat with Todd Abrams. It'll be great. They'll give you some advice on how to ship meals. Group chat them. They start talking. They're extra bored because there's no office right now. So they got time to talk all day. And then Todd's like, hey, what if you sold frozen acai on KVC television? Jeff was like, okay, <laughs> let's do it. A few weeks later, there is Jeff. I got recordings of him on KVC selling out $150,000 in 11 minutes. And then they keep having to come back over and over. And so we go from this situation where me and my friends, we decide to buy the existing locations to help make sure the company has an extra couple million bucks. Now, everyone has a couple million bucks extra. They're selling 150K a week in frozen packs. As COVID is in that scenario, well, we're like, why don't we go get some leases? Jeff is like, the country's going to reopen. Let's go sign leases and get great deals. So he goes around the country and gets 297 leases. You know why? Nobody else is trying to lease anything, especially not restaurants, in the middle of a shutdown. So he's getting like, six months of TI or free rent, 12 months of free rent from the date of reopening the country, which was a crazy deal because nobody knows when it's going to reopen. 50K, 100K, 150K, 10 improvement money. They just want people to sign leases. And here we are, a reputable brand, 20-ish stores signing leases. And so that terrible moment, that tragedy of the whole world shutting down led to Everbolt getting way more capital, way more locations. Fast forward two years, we got 70 locations open. So 23 to 70. 400 locations have been paid for, tens of millions of dollars more financing, all from this tragedy. We're able to grow like a phoenix from the ashes. Man, incredible. I will tell you, one of the things I really admire about you is you're really good about spotting trends, getting the pulse on where things are going. And a lot of these businesses, it seems like they start from a group chat, even a text chat. I think this was the case with cards and coffee, right? It's exactly what happened. So I got obsessed with sports cards because Gary B, Gary Vaynerchuk, asked me to go to Chicago to the sports card conference, maybe like four or five months before COVID, right? Before the shutdown. And so go out to Chicago, met this big convention, whatever it was, maybe half a year prior to the shutdown. And I get obsessed with cards. And then we start a group chat together, Gary and I. You can only have like 32 or 36 people in an iMessage chat. So we start a second chat and then a third chat and then a WhatsApp chat because we keep maxing out. And the characters are interesting. It's like Steve Aoki, Lewis Howes, Logan Paul, that are like talking about sports cards and Pokemon. And then it's right around four or five months goes by. It's like summertime. Gary's like, I've always had this fun idea of cards and coffee. It's going to be like a cooler version of all these other card stores. Most of them are antiquated, 20, 30 years old. And it's the same father and son. And they won't modernize it. They won't do eBay or StockX or make anything cool or go online or make social media content. Cards and coffee would be cool. And I was like, sure, I'll do it. It's like September I don't say anything else. I just say, I'll do it. Everyone's laughing. Yeah, you know, kind of like if Michael and I were at the bar drinking a beer. Yeah, we should open a card store and you clink your beers together and nothing ever happens, right? Because you're just talking. Well, seven weeks later, October 2020, I sent a photo to the group chat of me standing in front of the store. Open. Eight weeks later, I did a million dollars in sales. Eight months later, we did $10 million in sales. Now, two years later, it's been $27 million in sales. There's nine stores open. Oh, because Gary was joking or whatever he was. I don't know if it's joking or not, but just kind of said casually, I got an idea for cards and coffee. Man, I love it. Oh, now, I want to switch gears a little bit. And for the people who are listening who may not be familiar with you, this is going to be one where it might throw them for a loop. And I'd love for you to share how this fits into the Dan Fleischman ecosystem because I know you're passionate about it. I want to talk about the wild jungle. 
And again, based on everything we've talked about, if someone's not familiar with it, this is going to come out of left field, probably not going to understand it. I think you guys have, what, over 150 animals there now. If you could just explain what this is and what you guys are up to. Yep. So right now I'm like 20 yards away from water buffaloes, pigs, ostriches, zebras. They're all here. Camels, etc. Uh, so we created Wild Jungle, it's W-Y-L-D, because one, my wife likes animals. So at first it was just like, let's get animals on a ranch and let's protect them and make an animal sanctuary. Two, I have a dear friend named The Real Tarzan. This guy gets like 200 million views a month on his social media. I convinced him to move from Miami to Temecula, California. And I was like, look, let's build a whole brand around you and let's rescue as many animals and get all these animals here to make them a better life, a forever home. So he moves here and brought in full-time videographers and on nine acres out of the 26 acres, it's all animals. There's 188 animals and growing. We keep having babies every week. And so it's a place for private tours and private events we do here. We're not open to the public just because we don't want a bunch of chaos here all the time. We actually live here. So it's open for private events and things like that, private tours. But essentially it is a place where families and friends can come and interact with animals on a personal level. They can feed them carrots and sweet potatoes, et cetera. But this is our forever home. And a lot of these animals, they're forever home too. From what I've heard, it's not inexpensive to maintain. I think I heard over $9,000 a week on hay. I think the water's free, but you guys have zebras, giraffes. This is wild. 9200 bucks a week in hay, yes. And growing because we keep having more animals. So It sounds like you also had some interesting collaborations with Bedros. You guys do Operation Black Site there. And I think this is even a prevailing theme across a lot of the different businesses you're involved in. It's just collaboration and finding ways to connect one business with another business or one entrepreneur with another entrepreneur. Instead of just one plus one equals two, it's almost making it multiply. Yep. I like collaborations. I like 50-50 joint ventures. I don't do any deals unless I have a quarterback, which is the CEO. I don't do anything no matter what, unless there's a quarterback to run that business. Even when I have joint ventures, I want someone that's going to be running the business, running the operation. But I just don't have any greed. I'd rather just split up 50-50, even if I'm going to do more of the work or put up more of the money. I'm negotiating against myself here. People are listening that might do deals later. I want to make cool things happen as long as I know someone can run it efficiently. To me, it's like, what's the difference? I don't want to say I'm not doing it for the money, but I'm not really doing it for the money on most of these deals because I just like the action and what they do, what they create, et cetera. To me, the long term of it is if I can have a bunch of joint ventures and I can invest in a bunch of different companies. When I'm investing, I'm buying five to 20% of businesses and sometimes more if it's a smaller business. When I'm doing joint ventures, I want 50-50. And then if I'm taking advisory board shares, I want one to 5%. Kind of my life in a nutshell, I'm very open about what I do and how I like it. And if a company does great, fantastic. If it does okay, fantastic. I just want to try to prevent any companies from failing if I could be there to help them with money, resources, connections, et cetera. I know you just mentioned with every company, you've got a CEO. What do you look for in an operator? How do you know that you have the right person there? So they have to be passionate about what that thing is. I'm not looking for the Harvard grad that's just super smart. My concern there is that they can just go get another job. If you're the Harvard grad with eight years experience and a doctorate, you don't really need me. You're here and I might be your stepping stone to the next thing. That's not really my CEO. There's nothing against Harvard grads. It's just for me, I want lifers. If you look at every business I have, I have the same CEO in every one of my companies. There is not one that is left. My employees are been with me for four to 12 years each. Nobody leaves. Sorry, there was one person I forced to leave because it was a great company that he had equity in, a multi-billion dollar company called ClickUp. I'm like, hey, you should go. <laughs> but outside of that, nobody leaves except for if I push them out. I look for humans and I look for the human factors that they're passionate about what the thing is, whether it's sports cards, live events, acai bowls, whatever that thing is, social media. Then I look for... Are they ride or die? And ride or die means it's 11 p.m. at night. 
they're at home and we just found out that the water pipe exploded over the convention booth. Do they get up and try to fix it and figure it out? Or do they like, hey, I'll call the place at 8 a.m. tomorrow and I'm sure we'll just get it cleaned up. Big difference in humans, right? And so I'm looking for people that are ride or die, that are willing to do whatever it takes to take care of things. And they actually want to do it proactively. And so you can't necessarily get that in an initial interview because if I ask Michael, hey, if a pipe bursts at 11 o'clock, what would you do? And he might say, oh, man, I'd get out of bed. I'd just get in a car and drive 200 miles to go fix it. I don't care. That's nice to say. But in reality, would you get up and drive 200 miles to go fix it? And so I try to gauge questions when I'm interviewing people, but ultimately I'm going to learn from when they actually get into the field. You can kind of feel it the way that they answer if they're being real with you or not. I know you mentioned that you generally don't have people that leave you or certainly employees, but are there certain warning signs you'll notice right out of the gate where it's like a few weeks in or less than 30 days in where you're like, okay, this person's not a right fit for this company. We've got to free up their future. We got to get somebody else in. Yeah. You can feel it really quickly on how they interact with the other staff members, executives, investors, vendors, clients, partners, et cetera. You can find out really quickly whether they're getting gossiped about or they're the one doing the gossiping, which happens at all in companies. I'm not saying that's not supposed to happen, but it happens all the time. There's levels to the gossip and levels to the finger pointing. And he said he was going to do this and she said that and I was going to do this and they didn't show up. They were late. That gossip stuff's always going to happen, but there's levels to it. So you can hear a lot and learn a lot at the beginning from a new hire. But the way that they interact with everyone, you're going to know. If they immediately be like, oh, we should fire that person because they did X, Y, Z. Whoa, you just got here. <laughs> you're like, you can learn a lot about this. The human nature, I think, is the main thing I'd say. And most recently, I know this is something you're very, very excited about. You guys just completed a big merger. These types of things, after having done so many deals and just been involved in so many companies, does it still excite you when something like this comes together? Yeah. So this one took me a long time, a lot of focus, a lot of energy to go all in because it's a big deal. I mean, these guys do $72 million in live events. It's a big company. They have 85 employees and they're a machine. That's kind of why I nicknamed them the machine. They're really going for it. And so we were already in parallel. I was already helping them with get celebrities and athletes. They were booking A-Rod, Magic Johnson, all my friends. I would send them and they would book them. They're already working with my attorneys, my accounting, my People at AngelList to help raise capital, all the things that are in my world, they were already utilizing. So that was a natural fit that they are working in unison with a lot of my same characters and friends. And then I would speak at their events and I watched how it was running. They've got 2,500 people on a Wednesday somewhere in like a random city. And I was like, man, this is really impressive. From my experience, I watched people spend six to 12 months to fill up one event a year. They're doing one a month all over the country at 2,500 people a pop. Like it's easy. And so I just thought about that side of it and then looked at how they are as humans. They have their own charity efforts. They build like 16 schools. They feed 4,000 families a day. They're doing things that I love already without me. And so I looked up, okay, well, they have a 15K mastermind, a 25K mastermind. I've got a 100K mastermind. There's no competition there. We can now be what's called an ascension model. Someone could come for free to Elevator Nights, spend a little bit of money for Aspire Tour, join a 15K mastermind, a 25K mastermind. Or go to 20K Operation Black site and go learn shooting or jump all the way up to the 100K. You have something for everyone. And so I just thought the scenario of where they are in their business and how their live events are and how mine had been going for years, there's a way we could work something out. And so that's what we did and spent the last month and a half figuring all the details out. And then five days ago, announced it to their staff and to the world. And here we are. And I think the other thing that you'd mentioned, I was hearing this on your podcast, is that nobody got laid off. So usually you sometimes see these mergers happen and there's duplicative roles. 
and some people have to go, but in this case, you were able to keep everybody. And I wanted to make that clear to their staff so they wouldn't be in fear. Sometimes when a merger happens, people are nervous and they should be. And so I was very clear up there on stage with Andrew and Eddie, the two founders, said to the room, like, just to be clear, even if there was overlap, it's okay. There's so many different brands. No one's going to get fired. It's based on this merger. You still have to be good employees, but like based on this merger, there's not a single staff member that's going to get cut. I love it. Now, I want to pivot a little bit and talk about philanthropy, which is also a big focus of your podcast too. You've been involved with the world's largest toy drive, really been the founder of it. And there's a lot of people that when they look at potential competitors or inspiring others, they don't want to be replicated. But this is the thing that I think you actually want to see other people replicate, if you could speak to that. Please, if you're listening, go make your own toy drive. Make it as big as possible. Do as many toy drives as you can. I want you to crush my record and destroy me. Go do toy drives. I just want the kids to get as many toys as possible. And I don't even need people to know that I have a toy drive. My name's not on it. I'm not on the flyers. I do the toy drives so that anybody can be involved in the toy drives and they can replicate it on their own. This year, obviously, we're going crazy. We're doing 10 cities in a two-week period, which I was literally working on right before this podcast because there's a lot of details to fly around to 10 cities that quickly and efficiently. But the toy drive is, for me, a way for people to replicate toy drives in their local town and realize they don't need money to do it. I'm going to be showcasing and teaching for the next few months in particular. This is how you can throw your own toy drive without any money. Here's how you do it. Here's how you organize it. Here's how you rally the troops. Here's how you get the community together. Here's the drop-off location. Who do you call to give the toys to? I'm going to walk through everything and make basically like a cheat sheet. This is exactly how you do a toy drive. Because my goal is, while we're out there doing 10 cities, hundreds of cities are happening all over the world because people are doing their own small, medium, or large toy drives. Yeah. And I think the one that you guys did, the largest, it was like over 165,000 toys and filled up a whole stadium. This is insane. And as with a lot of things, I think there was another example you gave. It was a few months back. It may have been a few years at this point, but the tipping that you would do when you go to a restaurant. I think some people, you could rub them the wrong way and say, look, Dan's showing off, but it was actually the exact opposite of, that really wasn't the reason why you were showing what you guys were doing. If you kind of explain what was going on there. So when the country shut down, the restaurant workers weren't making tips. And if you think about how hard they work there, and if nobody's coming in, there's no other real option for them to make any money. And so we started with what's called the $100 tipping club. And we'd get 10, 20, 30 friends together to pitch in a hundred bucks each. Sometimes someone put an extra We'd be able to tip a couple thousand dollars to a waiter or waitress. And then half of the money, typically, we'd ask them to split with the bar backs, the chefs, cooks, et cetera. So the waitress would get like 1500 staff would get 1500 to split up, and everyone was excited. Sometimes we did a $1,000 version. And we were trying to make the $100 version famous. The $1,000 one was more for us because I wanted my friends to step up and donate more because I knew they could. And so we started doing the $1,000 one, and we were getting together like 25, 30 people together. So you're talking about $25,000 or $30,000 on a random Tuesday. And by the way, the staff has no idea. When we walk in, they have a headache that's coming in, right? They got to deal with 27 people to feed them, right? And so then we surprise them at the end, the $1,000 each. And so thirteen five in that example, thirteen five goes to the waitress or waiter, thirteen five goes to the cooks and staff, et cetera. So what's important about that is we started getting replicated. I was getting tagged dozens and dozens of times a week of these $100 tipping clubs a week. Now, I only get tagged a few times a week, but I'm seeing hundreds of people have done this now. Hundreds. They have no idea who I am, which is fantastic. That means my job was right. I don't care about anybody knowing that I started a tipping club. I did it with a friend named Jimmy Rex. He was the original starter and we started doing them together. I don't care if anyone knows who Jimmy Rex is or who I am. What I do care about is 
people are doing tipping clubs all over the world because it makes people happy. It makes humans be able to give back in an efficient way going to people that you know are hardworking. There's a difference that you know those people that are working those shifts, it means a lot to them. And so the tipping club is something we've done for two years now, but we're going to keep doing that for the rest of our lives. So Dan, kind of an overarching question. How do you define success? Because I know we've talked about a lot of different types of businesses, giving back, philanthropy. What is success to you? It's freedom. The freedom of being able to do whatever you choose to do anytime, day and night. And that freedom is hard to come by. And so in order to gain freedom, you have to have financially, you have to have some type of money. It's all relative to your situation, but some type of money that can allow you to be able to make decisions based off of wants and not needs. From a time perspective, you have to have people that you trust. If I didn't have quarterbacks, CEOs to run these things, I would just have a bunch of businesses I was running morning and night. If I wanted to not answer my phone for the whole day or the whole weekend, everything would still run. I'm just the cherry on top helping or connecting or giving some advice, but ultimately they would all still run. And so my definition is I have the ability to choose at any time to go to any city, anywhere. If I want to make the world's largest toy drive, the world's largest pizza festival, the world's largest mastermind, the world's largest sports car store chain or acai bowl chain, whatever that thing is, I can do it because of the decades of work that led to that to give me the time and ability to be able to make those situations happen. Yeah. And I know when we first started talking, you were mentioning the fact that not a fan of idle time and constantly working, but always the next thing. What's driving you today? It's not money. It hasn't been for a while. What's that driver? So the game is so interesting to me of like, now how do I scale? I call this my scaling year because I'm not really trying to do other ventures or other businesses. I'll invest in other businesses, but I don't want to do any other new ones. I want to scale the ones I have. Sports credit store, nine locations now. That all happened in the last year. Everbowl went from 30-ish to 70 and one new one every six days. The masterminds, instead of just growing mine, now I bought a big piece of a huge company. Like I'm in scale mode. I'm not in, hey, let's add a bunch of new businesses or ideas. I don't want shiny objects and they're like, oh yeah, I should start a phone charger company. Oh yeah, I should start a light company or a car company. I'm not trying to do all these different things. It sounds like I'm doing a ton of things, but I have quarterbacks for each one. And I really just want to scale things now. Ideally, I would just scale my investments, scale my syndicate group, scale the masterminds, scale the acai bowls, scale each of the things rather than trying to start new things. What's a day in the life look like? I'm sure they're all different, but between speaking, Money Mondays, the weddings, so if anybody follows you on social media, it's like, this is the most interesting man because every day it seems like you're in a different place. There's something interesting going on. You're interviewing young GZ. I mean, it's crazy. This is wild. So what's a typical day in the life? Well, it's definitely not a typical day. I was in seven cities the last five days. And it's just a whirlwind of Jacksonville, Miami, Las Vegas, New York, Tampa, back to LA. When I'm here in Temecula at the ranch today, I go to LA tomorrow, New York on Wednesday. And every day is a different setting of things. Tomorrow at 10 a.m., I'm going to be meeting with a guy that has a bunch of kangaroos to see if I can get kangaroos at the ranch. At 1 p.m., I'm going to be meeting at a bank to talk about the wild jungle about our brand. That night, I then meet with a bunch of influencers for dinner. Wednesday morning, fly to New York. Thursday, I got A-Rod, Marcus Simonis, almost 2,000 people coming to aspire towards the event. Friday morning, I fly to LA. I get a humanitarian award next to Drew Brees and Michael Phelps. Saturday morning, I'm back at the ranch feeding zebras. There's a different hat every day of the week, but most of my days are really just inside of my phone. A lot of group chats, social media, interacting with everyone, and... 
whether I'm on a plane, whether I'm in bed, whether I'm traveling, whether I'm in the passenger seat of a car, I'm just in my phone texting and group chatting, trying to make all these things work. But they are very different. Each aspect of the life is very different and there is no similar days. And maybe that'll change at some point. Some point I might just be at the ranch all the time. That's it. But for now, I'm in the game. I'm in the mode. And I feel like I have a real shot at it right now to like build all these brands, businesses, et cetera, and especially build the charities. I just feel like I'm in that moment where I can really go for it. The example you gave earlier where a bunch of guys are sitting at a bar and saying, hey, wouldn't this be a cool idea? Wouldn't this be a cool business? It really sounds like you're the guy that the majority of people, that's where it ends. And with you, that's where it begins. And then it just goes from like, wouldn't it be cool to actually executing and making it happen? So for those that are going to listen to this podcast and they hear about all the things you're involved in, and for them, it just seems amazing. It's almost their vision for what their life could be like. Is there a next step that you would give them? How do they move that needle forward? How do they get there? So with my books, I always sign three words. Just get started. The thing is, when someone says, I want to open a card store, Gary says, let's open a card store. Okay, let's get started. I go get a corporation and get a name, get a bank account, make investment documents, make an operating agreement, buy a bunch of sports cards, get a lease, open the store. It's a formula. I just get started. Hey, I want to write a book. Okay, write out your chapters, write out the sub chapters, write up each section. What's the topic going to be? And write one to three pages per each one. And by the way, in a few weeks, you're going to have a book done. I just get started whenever someone says something like, let's do the world's largest toy drive. Great. Let's pick a venue. Let's pick a date. Let's pick a city. Let's pick a time. Where's the drop-off location? How do people pick it up? What kids are we going to send it to? It's just a checklist for me of things to just go do it. And when people have these hesitations, they're like, yeah, one day I'll do that when things are right. There's never a perfect time. There's never a perfect time to get married. There's never a perfect time to have a kid. There's never a perfect time to start a business. You just start. You just get started in that moment. And I think it'll change a lot of people's lives if they realize that not that much bad can happen from getting started on your dreams. You're going to learn something. Even if it doesn't work out, things aren't going to work out like some of the stories we talked about. But as long as more things work out than don't, and some of them have that big, huge win for you, like you have a really fun, fulfilling life. And as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? The way you become a game changer is you literally go change the game. How do you do that? Analyze what's right and wrong about an industry. Analyze what's right and wrong about a business. Research everything about it and see what do people like, what do they not like, what do they hate, what are they amazed by of that niche thing and go do that and do way less of what people don't like, do way more of what they do like. All of a sudden, you're going to stand out. You're going to change the game. I want to give a huge thank you to Dan Fleischman for taking the time to speak with us today. And I want to thank you, yes, you, for listening to this podcast and for your commitment to growing as a leader. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on our interview with Dan Fleischman, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit legalpodcast.com.